welcome back to another episode of the Gentleman Dojo. And I know that all of our listeners are waiting for my other two co-hosts to jump in and yell the Dojo suffix with me, but... This is a very special episode of the Gentleman's Dojo. I'm your host, Gary Cannon. My two co-hosts, Patrick Keen and Steve Byrne, are not in studio today, unfortunately. Patrick is doing a, a little trip, a solo trip through Europe to discover himself. And uh, my other friend, Steve Byrne, my other co-host, he is traveling. Steve is in Cincinnati, Ohio this week, working at the Liberty Funny Bone. So if you're out that way, go check him out. So I am flying solo today, but there is a specific reason for that because our guest today uh, had a very short time window and I wanted to get him on as quickly as possible to discuss his brand new movie that was just released on HBO last week. And I got to tell you, saw the movie, absolutely loved it. He is the director of that movie, the Andre the Giant movie that premiered last week on HBO. And he is here to chat with us about the movie, and I appreciate this more than you know, taking time to do this. Our guest today in the Gentleman's Dojo, how about a round of applause for Jason Hare? Hello, Jason. How you doing, man? Jason, first of all, thank you so much. I will tell you this, uh, we normally run our show, our podcast, with three people. It's me, my buddy Steve, my buddy Patrick. Uh, Everybody's schedule is so sporadic, and it's very difficult to lock everybody down and then also lock the guests down. But I knew your time, your window was so short that I'm like, you know what? The other two guys are out of town today. I'm knocking this out. I really want to talk to you about this great movie, and I just wanted to do this, and I didn't care if it was just me. Uh, We have our studio engineer, Aaron, who's also seen the movie, who loved it as well. Yes. So I'm totally excited to have you here in the dojo, so we appreciate you being part of it. Good to be here, man. Are we... I called in, and you were in the middle of that that open right there. We're not live. This is gonna no. We're on some other time. This it's not live, but it does post up. We're jumping uh, later right today. in. We're jumping right in. We don't play games here. It's very exciting. I like it. I like uh, it. By the way, uh, I I don't know if if this was was referenced in the movie. Did you ever get a chance to meet Andre the Giant? Did you meet him at all? No, you didn't. No, he was he was he passed away long before. I mean, I was probably sixteen when he passed away. Yeah, sure. I was sixteen because it was January of ninety three. Um, and I wasn't a big wrestling guy when I was a kid, so I wouldn't have gone to the live events or, or had any occasion to meet him. I obviously knew who he was. I grew up in the 80s. I was a child of the 80s, and he was a pop cultural icon fixture, um, but I never was in the same space as him, no. Well, well, Jason, how did the whole movie come to be? I mean, because obviously he'd been around for a long time. He passed away years back. How did the movie come to be, and how did HBO decide that they wanted to go and make this this thing happen? So Bill Simmons, who co-created the 30 for 30 series at ESPN while he was with ESPN, uh, has wanted to do this. That was one of the the first 10 or 12 docs that he wanted to do when he started that series with Connor Schell at ESPN. And they couldn't work it out contractually with Vince McMahon and the WWE. And, you know, at that time, this is about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, WWE was still very proprietary with their stuff, and they wanted to produce everything in-house and so forth. And there were all kinds of licensing fees and just a lot of red tape hoops to jump through. And it never came to fruition. And then when Bill uh, went over to HBO a couple of years ago, one of the first things that he did was to, to try and revive the discussions to get this doc off the ground. And at that point, the business had evolved, the, the television and film landscape had evolved, 
Um, and Vince had evolved and just kind of came around to being more open to someone outside the WWE family doing it. And I had worked with Bill because I did four 30 for 30s, and I think three of them he was there for. So we worked with each other. I did a short film for his his old website, Grantland, uh, about a boxer. So um, I just had a relationship with him going back. And so the, the president, I used to work at HBO Sports for seven years. Oh, and wow. And I knew a lot of people over there. Um, and because... they called me and asked me if I'd be interested. And I was kind of lukewarm to it because, as I just said, I wasn't a huge wrestling fan. I didn't know if I was the right fit because I didn't really have a passion for the, for the genre, for the culture. And then when I talked to Bill, he told me a little bit about, you know, Andre's life and what he went through. And I started doing my own research and realized, all right, this is not a story about Andre the Giant, the wrestler. This is a story about Andre Rusimov, the human being, and what it was like to go through life like that. Right. So that was the... That's the whole deal. And Jason, you did four 30 for 30s. You did the 85 Bears. You did the Fab Five. What were the other two that you did? I did Bernie and Ernie, which was about right. uh, Bernard King and Ernie Grunfeld. And I did one called Down in the Valley, which never aired, which was about Sacramento, Sacramento's fight to, to save the Kings from being uh, sold or bought by Seattle investors. Got it. It's interesting because looking at Andre's life, just, just to jump ahead a little bit, um, doing stand-up. I'm on the road a lot, and I got to work with a comic named Ralphie May. Are you familiar with Ralphie? Yes. So Ralphie, a, a, a very, uh, not to that extent, but very similar in a sense to Andre was, you know, this big guy who, you know, had to jump from show to show to show because that's how he made a living. But But you could see in Ralphie's eyes how difficult it was for him to travel. When he was performing, that's when he was at his happiest. And I, I, I really feel that by watching the Andre documentary and, and, and seeing Ralphie when he was in his, his prime and before he passed away, like I felt so many similarities between the two. Yeah. I'm sure that, that he had similar difficulties when he was on the road and similar difficulties, just navigating day-to-day life, things that we take for granted, going up and down stairs, getting into a car, sitting in a movie theater, getting fitted for a suit. There's so many things that are just pedestrian functions of life that, um, that guys of that size, I mean, not that, that Ralphie, I mean, Andre dwarfed Ralphie as sure. big as Ralphie was, but, um, yeah, I can see the similarities, especially being on the road that much. And I'm sure it was a, a, a solitary life and, and oftentimes a lonely life. I don't know what kind of things Ralphie leaned on, but obviously we touched on, uh, Andre's reliance on alcohol quite a bit. Um, yeah, just a, a difficult life to go through. The, the thing that surprises me um, is that there's so many reactions that come out now, and, and the rank and file on Twitter, for instance, just seems to, to be that, oh, what a sad story it was. And that's, that was not my intent with making this movie, was to make a sad movie. I get that, that the end of Andre's life was inherently sad, just because whenever anyone passes away, especially before their time, um, it's tragic. But this was not meant to, to, to be a sad movie in the same way that people said the same thing about the 85 Bears. I mean, the people, you know, life, life ebbs and flows. And when we do these documentaries, we try to tell the full scope of a story. So you're going to tell things about people who die. That's, that's what happens in life. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a sad story. I, I wanted the end of this thing to be more triumphant and to share what an extraordinary, unique life this was. So, um. Well- and it's interesting. It's not disappointing. The, the, the reaction has been great from people. I'm not complaining about the reaction from people, but it's it's um, 
it's just peculiar to me that that people would call this a sad movie because to me it's not. Well, it's also interesting too, Jason, because I I draw the parallels between you know a little bit of Ralphie and how he lived his life along with Andre the Giant. And I mean, you look at look at Andre and what he did. I mean, just you know the, the, that he wrestled for twenty seven years. He wrestled on six continents, had over five thousand matches. What's crazy, and you look at Ralphie and where he traveled and what he got to do. These guys, even though they lived until forty lived much more of a life than I would say 90% of the people that live into their 80s or 90s, correct? I mean, I mean, th- these guys lived an amazing life that most people who work regular nine-to-five jobs would kill for. Yeah, I mean, think of the amount of lives that they touched. You're talking about millions of people that they made happy over, over you know, decades. I don't know how long Raffley was in the business, but I know it's been longer than a decade or was longer than a decade, yeah. right? He was probably doing stand-up from his early 20s. So, and Andre wrestled for 27 years, over 5,000 matches all over the world on six continents. I mean, just think of the amount of joy that he brought to people incrementally every single night and the amount of times that he gave of himself to bring that joy to people. Now, obviously, it's a job and he's doing it to be compensated, but it's not like this guy was, was living some lavish private jet lifestyle. I mean, he still was, was on the road out there humping it for over 300 nights a year for 27 years. Um, I just thought that it was, it was the story of a, nobody's perfect. Nobody's all good or all bad. Um, so he certainly had his flaws, but I thought that his generosity outweighed those flaws in such a compelling way that I wanted to, to share how special a guy this was with the world in telling the story. And and Jason, when you started doing research about him, because you you weren't into wrestling when you first started doing this documentary, when when you first started doing research, what were some of the things that popped out at you? You were like, oh my gosh, I had no idea, or this is something I was never expecting to, to hear about this man. Well, one of the interesting parts and one of the deciding factors was that a lot of the basic research was false. So you're, you're not only telling people a story about this guy, you're, you're setting the record straight for a lot of people who think they do know the story about this guy. So the, the first line of his Wikipedia page said that he was born in Grenoble, France, and that's not true. He was born six hours north of Grenoble, uh, which is in the Alps. He was born six hours north of there, right outside of Paris. But that was part of the backstory that they had made up for him and part of the, the, the myth, mythology that he perpetuated. So he would tell people that he was born in Grenoble when he went on talk shows. And he would tell people when people would say, you know, are there other big people in your family? He'd say, yeah, my, my grandfather was close to eight feet tall. Not true at all. Andre had a disease and, and he had a tumor on his pituitary gland and he never stopped growing. But if you look at, there's a, a picture we show in the final montage of him with his family at a wedding. And you see how much bigger he is than everybody else. This is not a family. You know, sometimes there's, you know, NBA families and stuff, and there's a lot of tall siblings. It's just like bigger families than normal. That's not the case with him. He had a disease. His mom was 5'2". But what was intriguing to me is that he perpetuated so many of these myths. And that, as always, when you do docs like these, the niche, the the, the most rabid fans are the ones who, who nitpick the most. And I think that a lot of those people had grown up for years thinking that these were a certain truths, that he was 7'4", 520. Um, the reality is that nobody knows how tall he was or how much he weighed. All those records are destroyed. And so, yeah, of course, we asked people that in the doc, you know, how, how big was he, how much did he weigh, at his, at, how tall was he at his tallest? Nobody knows because, I mean, for sure, nobody knows. He wasn't 7'4". We can all 
agree to that. Even Vince, Vince alludes to that, or he, he um, admits to that in the movie, that he wasn't 7'4". Was he 7 feet? It depends who you ask. There's people who say he was as low as 6'9". I don't believe that just from looking at pictures. I mean, I met Hogan and for the interview, obviously. Hogan is enormous, and Hogan is smaller now than he was at his height because his body is just kind of growing in on itself or, or breaking down, his back and his knees. Uh, he's had like nine surgeries or something like that. But in the pictures, Andre dwarfs Hogan. I can't imagine what a massive specimen this was to stand in front of uh, when he was at his biggest. Oh. So to answer your question, the, 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 the mythology and just the falsehoods, the basic falsehoods about this guy and the basic mystery of who this guy really was is what really intrigued me the most. Were there a lot of negative things that you read about him? I mean, in terms of his his personal life, his his personality overall, how he was out of the ring. That just when you started digging around, you just found out that that wasn't true. The biggest thing that that we read is that, um, and we were told, is that he could be surly and he could be grumpy, especially as his career went on. He got approached by a lot of people who treated him like a carnival attraction. People would come up and touch him. They would, they would, you know, stand in front of him and point and say, oh, my God, look at the size of this and this, as if the guy's just like a walking statue. And meanwhile, this is a human being. We're taught not to stare as little kids. And part of it is human nature. You can't help it but stare at him or, or, you know, it's tough to take your eyes off him. But that grew on him after a while and, and in a bad way. And, you know, Tim White alluded to, um, having to basically be his bodyguard at, at airports and restaurants and things like that and just sit there. And if someone approached him, Tim would have to stand up and say, listen, he's not signing autograph today. I really appreciate it. We appreciate your, your fandom and your attention, but he's not doing that. That's something that they had to deal with everywhere they went. Because A, he started to get really tired of the attention, and B, if you let one or two people do that, they said the next thing you know, there's 400 people around you in, a, in an airport. So... It was tough for him to hide. There's a lot of athletes that are that size. It would be tough for LeBron James to hide. But Andre especially, and especially the era of travel that, that he was um, experiencing, it didn't have you know the, uh, the lounges and, and the, the, the amenities that a lot of celebrities and bigger guys have today um, to avoid that kind of attention. He didn't have that. So uh, he could be grumpy, but, but that was the explanation for it. It's not that he was just a bad guy because the people who knew him best – said that he was he'd give you the shirt off his back um the the one big story that came up was i don't know if, how much of a wrestling fan you are but this incident that may or may not have happened um with bad news brown on a on a bus is that he had called him the n-word or said the n-word and that brown called him out of the bus to have a fist fight and it never went down we made a rule early on in this thing that we're only going to use first-person accounts in the stories that we told because there's such a myriad of stories out there about Andre. There would be no way to police it unless you said, all right, only first-person accounts of people who were there for the stories that we're talking about. So I've heard that he drank up to 200 beers, but we couldn't find anyone who was there for that particular story, if it happened or not. Right. We did have Ric Flair saying that he drank 106. So that makes the movie. Um, so that bus incident was the one thing that I wish we could have tracked someone down who was actually there. Now, Hogan, um, Hogan suppo- may or may not have been on that bus. This is one of those stories, too, that some people say it happened in Asia. Some people say it happened down south. Some people say it happened wherever. It's like the, the story about him passing out in the hotel lobby. Um, but Hogan obviously 
his recent history is fraught with that kind of news is that he was, he's now, you know, he was on the outs with the WWE for a long time and who knows what the status is now, but because he had used that word in, in the, the videotape that he sued Gawker about. So that was the one thing that was, that was difficult to navigate. Um, and ultimately we decided, you know, if we're going to go with a third person account of this, which may or may not be true, and how much are we really adding to the story of him? Um, we decided to omit it, but I forget what question you even asked. Because now it's like a therapy session. This is my last interview about this. this doc, <laughs> is it really I'm moving on to other things? And it's like, all right, oh, we're taking out all the, the the excess mental trash that I can discuss. But obviously, we had a lot of stuff to sift through when we're deciding what to put in this doc. So yeah, I, I this is Aaron, uh, the sound engineer. I'm a I was a big wrestling fan in the '90s and uh, a big a big film buff my entire life. So I had heard throughout the um, the Princess Bride, you know, special features that that there was this crazy story about him as a teenager being so large he couldn't fit on the school bus, and one day he's walking to school, and uh, the author Samuel Beckett is living in France and offers to drive him to school and does so every day because he's the only guy in the town with a convertible. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you come across that in your research? And there's. Uh, several versions of that story. Yeah, um, yeah. all of them are false. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, th- th- so this one we could verify because we went back to the village where he grew up. And yeah, we yeah. Interviewed classmates of his and his two brothers and his sister-in-law. Uh, Samuel Beckett uh, did have a second home in Moline, uh, or right outside of Moline, this village that, that's in a town called Usi Sermon, and it's now the the name of this road. It's a beautiful road. It's, it's we show it at the beginning of the movie. Um, it's called Rue de Samuel Beckett, and his house is there, and there's a plaque in front of it. So he mm-hmm. did live about probably a mile down the road from, from Andre. Yeah. Um, we went to, obviously, all the houses and, and did all the on-the-ground research to ask people, is this true? Because that, obviously, as a filmmaker, that story was enthralling to me. Yeah, it's delightful. That, that, what, what an unlikely friendship. And the story that I, that the version that I had heard was not the convertible. And I also heard stories about him um, having to, drive around in cars that had you know convertibles or like sunroofs or whatever when he all of that stuff is false you see him trying to get into that small car which was for the in the in the dock in the black and white clip which was just for the purpose of like a visual gag can we fit this guy in this car um so anyways the beckett thing first of all the idea that he couldn't fit on the bus when <laughs> he was 12 or 13 years old he didn't start getting big until he was around 14 or 15 um so that's an important part of the story the second more important part of the story is that there was no bus. The kids <laughs> walked to school. And Beckett, just like any of the other people who lived in the village, oftentimes a lot of those people had trucks. It was, it's a farming village. They lived on a pear farm. Yeah, yeah. And the guys would come by in trucks, and sometimes the kids would hop in the, the flatbed, and they, he would drive them two kilometers to the school from Andre's house. School, I mean, the town is just pictured like this little idyllic French town. That's what the town looks like. There's a church and there's a store and a, and a pub and a school. So they would drive them into that, uh, to that part of town. But he had no singular relationship with Andre at all. And Andre, if you looked at him back then, wouldn't have looked any bigger than any of the other kids. Yeah. It's funny because it, it, it is like, uh, as I was watching the documentary, I was thinking like, this is so much of Andre is a, and, and you say it, I think they, it says in the documentary as well, like so much of him is a tall tale, like, 
like a Paul Bunyan, Pecos Bill, that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think it speaks to, we want those things to be true. We want to hear stories. We want to believe in larger than life characters. And I certainly have embraced that in a lot of ways. You know, sports storytelling is, is a lot of it is steeped in that. Yeah. But also I'm interested in, in getting at what the, the truth is. Now, that story that you told a fraction of our audience, let's be generous and say one out of 20 people who watches this doc is familiar with that story. Yeah. Is it worth taking 5% of the people down that road Just to, to debunk, debunk that yeah. myth? No. And you're using five minutes of your uh, a precious 84 minutes that you have to tell a story that ultimately is not true. So we grappled with that and decided ultimately, why are we going to tell a story that we're, we're going to say this is not true? Um, but again, like that's, that's one of the criticisms that comes out. I can't believe that they didn't, that they didn't touch on this. I can't believe they didn't touch on Shepard Ferry and the Obey Giant campaign. That Obey Giant, do you know what I'm talking about there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the famous bumper sticker or, or yeah. graffiti art. Yeah, that Shepard Ferry, from my understanding and my research, has no affinity, certainly no relationship, but no affinity for Andre. This was by chance that he stumbled upon this image when he was, when he was making that silkscreen, the, the initial one, or whatever it was that he was making. Um, and it happened long after Andre's yeah, death. Yeah. Like, yeah, Our story years. begins and ends with Andre's birth and death. And, what, and, and the, the parallel story is the evolution of uh, the pro wrestling business as it mirrored the evolution of his career and how vital he was to the evolution of that business. So there's certain things that you, you have to say, all right, this is not a three-hour, two-part documentary. This is, we have 84 minutes to tell this story, and what are the most important beats? Yeah, and you definitely hit some some major emotional ones. Um, just for me personally, like seeing Hulk Hogan and Vince McMahon cry. Just, and the same with the 85 Bears doc, uh, which I loved. I was, I was in Chicago at the time uh, that they won the Super Bowl, and seeing them, and, and I was a huge fan of Walter Payton, so seeing... All mm-hmm. of his teammates who who were so tough on the field, just you know, mourning the loss of this this other uh, great great guy. It's like, ugh. Yeah, well, they they deified him. I've, I've never I've I've been in this business now for it'll be twenty years in November, and I've never met any anyone who was more of a revered figure in a locker room or by his peers than Walter Payton. I knew obviously that he was you know. He was a, a NFL immortal and a football icon, and, a, and a, you know he's he's probably on the Mount Rushmore of football players. But I had no idea just the the depths of the reverence that these guys had for him. Every single person who played for him, there wasn't one bad thing I heard about him on or off camera, or on the phone, or in, in two years of research and production on this thing. I, it was really remarkable. You, you know, what was interesting for me too, Jason, as I watched the movie, was that when he, when Andre first came to the U.S. and he started traveling and doing these shows in the Midwest, that he could really only do one appearance at a venue and then have to kind of push on because it, the documentary was saying once people had seen him, the fascination had kind of gone away. Was that true? Yeah, because he can't. He there's not going to be a rivalry because he couldn't conceivably lose. And everyone, there's like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, wink in that era that this was quote-unquote real. Of course, everybody knows, you know, it's an open secret now. 
But back then it was like they can't possibly write a storyline where this guy would have a rival because he was he dwarfed anyone that he came in contact with in these in these smaller territories. So if you know he's going to lose and you're coming there really to see him as a as an attraction, you're coming to see, you know, the giant. You're not going to come back a second or a third time and and spend your money because eventually that's going to lose its luster. So they used him um, wisely, in my opinion. They they used him really on a limited basis in each territory. So he would just kind of he was a nobody. He would go from town to town to town. But the the town that he comes to your town, he hasn't been there in a year. So you're going to go back and see him again because you had such a great time seeing him the year before. He was a, he was a gifted performer, um, as we outlined. I hope that that came through. Was was what a he wasn't just this big guy who came in. He really knew how to reel people in and to, and to bring emotion to the match. But they used him really wisely in that it was going to be only once in a blue moon he was going to come around. So it was an event when he came in. Andre could not exist today. It wouldn't happen. There are guys who were Andre's size, and there's not nearly the fascination because we had the Internet and, and widespread cable TV and all these apps and everything that you could possibly – there's no one out there. I doubt that there's an Andre lurking somewhere that no one's heard about. Well, yeah, um, it's interesting. Back then, there was such a mystique around him. Yeah, it's interesting you said that too in the movie, Jason, because it was one of those things. Because I remember seeing him at Joe Louis Arena because I grew up in Detroit and we would go to the monthly house matches that were there. And I just remember the only time that you really had a chance to see him up close was the minute that he walked through that curtain. That was it. There were no mm-hmm. real chances to see him on a YouTube or TV because he really wasn't promoted all that often until Vince kind of came and put mainstream into the whole thing but when he walked through that curtain that was the time that you're like oh my gosh there he is he's right there yep it was just wrestling magazines is where you would see him and there's a whole other doc to be done about the wrestling magazines and and how that that business evolved i mean what what they would do is they're mostly based in new york the bigger ones because that's just where the publishing mecca was at the time and and in some ways still is but they would get, you know, phot- photographers would take a picture of him in, say, St. Louis, and they would send in the pictures, and they would decide, these editors would decide which pictures they were going to use, and they would put them in, and, and they would send the p- photographer money, you know, 100 bucks for pictures or whatever. And then they would write fiction based on the picture, because there was no video. They weren't, going, they weren't sending reporters there like a, like a beat reporter. So they would get a series of pictures, and then they would create these stories. So a lot of these rivalries and the action and the history of wrestling is all based on the storytelling ability of these guys who work for these magazines. So that was fascinating to me too. It was, it was, there were so many little tributaries of stories that I, I dove into in my research and in the interviews that we couldn't use because it just would have taken you down such a, such a different path. We, we really towed the line with establishing Hogan's importance to the, the the birth of the WWF as we knew it, like the the national WWF, but that was solely for the purpose of paying off how significant it was that he slammed Andre, and that Andre put him over and really advanced the business in that way, and that Andre was generous enough to have done that for Hogan and for the business. It and it's also, in my mind, it's just an interesting thing to watch. There was, there was really cool video, really rare video of, of him when he was Golden Sterling and the stuff of walk, watching Rocky Three. I could watch that all day. 
and we decide, you know what, all right, we're taking like an eight to 10 minute detour here, but this is worth it because it's going to pay off in the end. So if people stay with us, they're going to understand why we did this later on in the movie. Well, here, here's what I absolutely loved. You, you present this great, and I got to tell you this, Jason, I didn't have HBO until a couple of nights ago and I wanted to see this movie and I'm like, I'm ordering HBO for this movie specifically. And I got to tell you, you paint this great picture of Andre just his backstory, his life, how he got started, his his beginnings of the Midwest. And then it jumps to how WrestleMania 1 through WrestleMania 3 is just this game changer for the WWF and Vince McMahon and the story of Hogan and Andre the Giant. And the, the, the picture that you then get into with those two and their relationship and how it just changed the world of wrestling in general was absolutely amazing. And just, you know, the story that they, Hogan didn't know what the script was going to be for WrestleMania three really until the day of, and he still didn't know. And, and, and Andre just seemed very low key about it. Didn't seem to want to really talk about it. The whole second part of that with the Andre Hogan, Vince McMahon, WWE was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, that was the the through line. And thanks for the the, the words or, or your you know the compliment. That was the through line of the movie to me was the friendship between these two guys and the relationship between um, McMahon and Andre and McMahon's uh, grappling with no pun intended with growing the business. And what to do with this guy when he was no longer physically able to perform. So those are the two things just from a, from a human interest standpoint that really fascinated me was, was cause I had no idea. It's one of those happy accidents you go in and there's really no way to research it that much because so much of this stuff we, we delved into this research and so much of it is just, these guys are, are lying when they do these interviews and they're in character. It, that's part of the culture. It's not, they're not lying in, in a, in a malevolent way. They're just lying because that's, they're telling stories. They're, they're in character. You know, it's not Hulk Hogan on the mic. It's not Terry Bollea on the mic. It's Hulk Hogan. So when we actually get to sit down with Terry Bollea and talk to him about how that character was developed, how it was created, how Vince McMahon Sr. wanted him to be a redhead because he was going to be the Irish wrestler. These are things that I had never known. Chief among them was, the, was his friendship and admiration for Andre. I had no idea that they were as close as they were until I actually interviewed him. I'd seen pictures and, you know, read some things about how they, they wrestled with each other and against each other for years, but I didn't realize how much admiration and reverence he had for Andre until we actually sat down, and it was palpable during that interview. Yeah, just, just watching the lead-up to WrestleMania three, and I lived in Michigan at the time, and I remember it was at the Pontiac Silverdome, and just couldn't afford tickets, couldn't afford to get it on pay-per-view because it was, you know, a lot of money at the time. But there's just this great visual of Bobby Heenan and Andre the Giant coming down in that cart to the ring and yeah. they're just getting stuff thrown at them. And Andre's just this big guy and these pieces of paper and these plastic cups are just ricocheting off of his big body. And just him getting in the ring, like, I, I also love the little note about how Big John Stud used to go over the top rope with his leg yeah. and Andre was like, that's my thing, asshole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was, he was territorial and could be sensitive to, he, he understood what his niche was and what his role was. So he didn't take too con- kindly to stud who was pretty ambitious. Um, you know, and that, that's a, that's a, that was his thing. As Vince said, like, that's what Andre does. So why would you do that? It was sacrilege. 
in those locker rooms and, and in those locations, those territories, he was a god to those guys. A, because he treated them and the business, by and large, we outlined a few guys that he didn't really enjoy, Stud being one of them, but he treated them and the business with such respect. And B, because they knew their pockets were being lined whenever he came to town. Because he was going to sell out, he was a guaranteed sellout in whatever venue they were playing. And that was, there was only one person in those days who could guarantee that. This is pre, pre-Hogan. There's only one guy who could guarantee that when he came to town, and that was Andre. So how crazy could you be to want to, to borrow or steal some of his shtick? Like, no, that's the moneymaker. That's our guy. And he wasn't a fan of Randy Savage either, correct? Did not love Savage, no. <laughs> and that was a real no. that was a real deal. That wasn't just a wrestling thing. No, it wasn't. He he didn't um he thought Savage was more show business than wrestling business and uh he truly did not enjoy the feeling of having baby oil all over him after wrestling with Savage. He hated it. It it was interesting to me because there was this great moment in the film where he was on, Andre was on Piper's Pit with Bobby Heenan in the background, and he challenges yeah. Hogan for, for WrestleMania. And I think it was Vince McMahon who said, you know, he wasn't the most eloquent communicator, the most eloquent talker, but what he delivered in the ring just as a showman was absolutely amazing. Yeah, that was Gene. Gene Oakland, yes. mean Gene, said uh, he wasn't the most articulate man. He spoke in other ways. Um, and it's true. He, he did his talking with performance and um, really incredible athleticism, especially earlier in his career. But he wasn't the guy who was going to get up there and be on the mic and be a talker. He was not, he was not the precursor to The Rock or, or those kind of guys. He was a guy who would get in there, and, and it's almost like Chaplin-esque, like these guys who, who have the ability to, to captivate without words, just by being who they are and, and by subtle uh, – physical movements and, and nuance um, can captivate an entire arena. That, that's almost as impressive a talent as the guys who can get on and speak eloquently for two minutes and, and have people enraptured verbally. This guy could do it uh, in other ways. Well, it's also brilliant that a guy that his size could go his whole career and not even once like accidentally injure another performer. Yeah. And he was really, really proud of that and, yeah. and that he had so much reverence, even for the guys that he didn't really enjoy. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's tough not to injure somebody when you have two feet standing on their lower back and you're 500 pounds. But, um, yeah, there, wasn't, there was never a, a, an accident or, or anything like that. I mean, even the injury that he suffered, um, we didn't get into really the, the Killer Khan uh, rivalry. But he, they, he suffered it. It's unknown if he suffered it getting out of bed or we talked to people who lived with him and people who were on the road with him. Uh, the doctor was under the impression that he suffered that injury in the ring. But then we talked to people. Uh, Vince told us that, no, he, he suffered it like getting out of bed in the morning or something. And they just used that to their advantage and said that Killer Khan had injured him deliberately. So they made a whole storyline about his recovery and his being out for vengeance. It's really incredible the ability of people in that world and that culture to uh to take advantage of every little nook and cranny of someone's life and to put it on the screen i was actually curious how much do you think he was making at the height of his career what what, what would be your guess well the guinness book of world records had him i believe in 73 or 74 um as the highest paid athlete in the world and who knows how 
accurate that is, but they had him, I believe it was at $400,000. He was getting a lot of money when you get into the eighties and you talk about licensing deals and, and his likeness and things like that. He was, he was making a lot. I think that, you know, I didn't ask his daughter who, um, who was awarded his assets at his behest, um, exactly how much it was. But I said that I had heard that it was in the millions and she said, think less. Wow. So, I don't know if, if I don't, necessarily believe that they that they deliberately stole from him i don't think it was like that but i just don't think that those guys made i mean hogan was making endorsement money you know andre was in a labat commercial and he was in um he was in a, a honeycombs commercial at, at kid cereal when he was in the 80s but this was not a guy who was on the cover of magazines and things like that outside of the wrestling world so it doesn't surprise me that i'm sure he was making six figure figures pretty consistently but also, I mean, the guy we heard from Schwarzenegger what happened when he when you try to pay for a meal around him. I mean, he, this is a guy who's on the road all the time, spending <laughs> money as soon as he made it. So uh, it doesn't surprise me. I'm sure that he he died wealthy. I don't think that he died exorbitantly rich. Was there? Um, sorry, Gary. Was there? You did speak to his daughter. Was there any thought to putting her in? I mean, we only kind of get the we only get the idea that she even had a daughter at the very end she's in it she is in it oh shoot I didn't yeah. yeah at the very end oh okay shoot I must no she's it. well she's in it in the middle of the movie when we talk about him being on the ranch she's in that whole part she's in it there's a five or seven minute scene and she's got a few sound bites in it when we interviewed her for a half hour and there's a lot more detail about uh her efforts to see him his efforts to see her her mom passed away uh in 2008 so there's a lot of details there that are tough to uh, ascertain. It depends who you ask, what their relationship was, whether it, it, it was anywhere from a one-night stand to, to uh, an off, on and off thing for years. So again, that's one of those things that we couldn't determine the truth of it. Mm. We didn't have enough people who could, could corroborate anything, so we steered clear of getting into details about her biological mom and instead just focused on, all right, we're doing a comprehensive doc about this man, he did have a daughter. She does want to be involved in it. Uh, she didn't know him that well. It doesn't reflect that well on him because he, he was, by definition, an absentee father. Mm. He, he met her three or four times in her life. Wow. Um, but we thought it was important to put it in there. If, if she's a willing participant, and you know, I hope that it served to validate other parts of the doc but by the fact that we're saying, okay, this is not a flattering account of this aspect of this man's life, but we're trying to tell a story in 84 minutes in full about this man. So here's an aspect of his life that, that a lot of people probably had heard about and may not know for certain. Um, so I'm glad that we put her in there. And, and by the way, you had so many, so many great guest stars that spoke on Andre's behalf, Billy Crystal, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Vince McMahon, Hogan, all these guys. W w were there any people that you went to that you really wanted for the doc that you couldn't get? The only guy who we got to know from um, was Letterman, and it was because uh, I was told it was because he didn't really have anything to say. I just thought that it might – sometimes you just try to th throw something at the wall and hope that someone says, oh, yeah, I'd love to talk about it. We have this, this story from backstage that no one ever heard. I think that his experience with Letterman 
uh, we showed a, a clip of it in the doc, and it's so easily Googleable. If you want to see his experience with Letterman, then, then that's pretty much the beginning, middle, and end of it is that little six-minute segment that he had when he was on the show in the early 80s. But that's the only – we didn't – not only did we not get a no from anybody besides that, we got enthusiastic yeses, um, and that that's a, also a credit to the WWE uh, who helped us with contact info and reaching out. I also want to say this, is, is that – the WWE, as great as they were with us, and as open and honest as, or honest, who knows? That's up to you to decide. But certainly as open and generous for this time as Vince was with us, um, and as trusting as he was with never once saying to me, you can't interview this person, you can't go there, um, they had no editorial control. There wasn't one note in the entire process of this thing that they gave that made us change what our approach was never once. It wasn't even on the table. So anyone who says that this is a, you know, whitewashed WWE product and they had to put that stuff in there, but the evolution of the business and Vince taking over, they had zero editorial control. I'm telling you this as the person who would know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Never once did they even have an opportunity to look at a cut. So, it's a, it's a credit to them for saying, all right, this is someone from outside of our family, outside of our business, who we're going to trust to tell this story, and we're just going to let him go with it. They saw a cut. I think they saw a cut before it premiered. But even then, they didn't have any right for feedback. And that's not to say that I wouldn't have taken it, because I, I came to respect a lot of guys that I worked with over there, and women who were great in that company. I was really, really – I have not had a better experience – working with any league or company that I ever had with, with them as a licensor of footage and as a, as a collaborator on this project. But I want to make it very clear to anyone who has any questions about that. They had absolutely zero influence over the story arc, how we cho- chose to tell the story, who we chose to tell the story, or the, the ultimate shape that the movie was in at the end. And I'm saying that as a credit to them. I'm not, I'm not saying it to, to, to take away any credit. I'm saying as a credit to them that they backed off and let us tell the story that we thought was what should be told. Yeah, that's great to hear because you you hear some things in the news about Vince being this very tough, affirmative kind of guy that wants it his way or no way. So it's it, it's great to hear that he was very flexible and let you guys do whatever you guys wanted. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure he is. And, and certain, I'm sure with, with contract negotiations and the way that his business is run, um, but clearly they thought that this was just kind of an offshoot of that business and that this was a separate entity who was going to tell this story. I obviously was vetted. I had to go through a gauntlet of people before I got to two interviews with him. No cameras, just a discussion between the two of us of, of what I planned to tell and how I planned to tell it. And I think he wanted to know that I was passionate about this thing and that I was going to, you know, he wanted to know that I was capable as a filmmaker technically. And then, you know, that I had a passion for things like music and production value, things that he's really into that we could, we could nerd out about that had nothing to do with the wrestling business. It just had to do with how you tell a good story and what's compelling to people and what, what, you know, what really resonates with me when I'm watching a doc or watching a movie, what I love and what I try to replicate and copy. Like, I, like most people that I know in this business, I didn't go to school for this. The, the school was just is just watching docs and watching movies your entire life and then trying to, to copy the people that you admire. Uh, by the way, Jason, what is the, the – I, I just saw that you did something called Finding Hulk Hogan. What was that all about? Yeah, that's, that's, that thing follows me around. I, I wrote <laughs> up a, uh, a, like a page-and-a-half treatment 
um, these guys approached me and asked me if I would be interested in producing a reality series about him probably about nine years ago. And ultimately I said no. <laughs> what happened was that it was uh, Eric Bischoff. You know him? Yes. Yeah. Uh, he was at this meeting. I was approached, and then it was kind of like the, the a small, smaller version of the of the events, like you're brought to to you're summoned to see this guy. And he was, <laughs> I didn't know anything about Bischoff or the wrestling business. And I come into this really fancy hotel in L.A. down by the water, and he's sitting at a table, and he's in like a leather bomber jacket. And it's like the summertime in L.A. I'm thinking, like, what is this? I thought there was like a practical joke being played or something. He's just sitting there like this stone-faced guy. And he says, what do you know about Terry Bollea? Or why do you think you're the guy to tell the story of Terry Bollea? I didn't know. Can I swear on this? Sure. I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought we were here to have a meeting about Hulk Hogan. Huh? Yeah. yeah, Terry Hogan. Who's she? Who's so, she? <laughs> he said, well, if you don't know how, who Terry Bollea is, and I don't even know why we're having this meeting. I said, all right, well, peace out, man. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Tell you. I didn't really care. I, was, I took the meeting just because I make it a, a practice to try and take every meeting I can. You never know. But ultimately, it came out to, all right, if you were going to do a pilot episode about this guy, what would you do? And I wrote like a page and a half for them just to kind of give them a, a, a roadmap for how I would shoot a pilot. And I think as per my contract for that, which was just – you know, one hour of work, I sat in my apartment and, and banged out like a, a page and a half just to help them out, really. Um, it wasn't for a lot of money. It, as part of the contract, it said consulting producer. And however things get put on IMDb, <laughs> I have absolutely no idea who builds those pages. But the next thing you know, it says Finding Hulk Hogan. <laughs> and then like this news comes out when it was announced that I was going to direct Andre. Well, he's got experience in the wrestling field. He, he was a producer on Finding Hulk Hogan. I said, I don't know what the fuck Finding Hulk Hogan is. That, that, that thing aired? I have no idea what you're talking right. about. So, yeah, no experience with him whatsoever. That's so funny. Yeah, it's so funny how stuff gets on there and you have no idea, you know, <laughs> how did that turn up? Uh, I got to tell you, Jason, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for making us, this podcast, your last press junket before you jump onto yeah, your next project. I, I, I got to tell you, I like I said, I ordered HBO just to get this movie. I was so excited. I, again, there's some of those pictures that I got to see of Andre, you never saw those anywhere. I mean, he was a really handsome looking guy when he was in high school. He was. Handsome guy. Yep. That picture of him at the end of the movie in the ring, uh, he's got his arm up. I mean, there were so many great things that I didn't know about him. I, I was so excited looking forward to this movie and just amazing. And like I said, talking about Andre, then it jumps into his relationship with Hogan, WrestleMania's one, two, and three, how he turns into the bad guy, how he then, you know, it, it's, it's more difficult for him to go around because he didn't want to be the bad guy. And then he kind of just gave the title over to Hogan and just changed wrestling forever at that moment. It was crazy. I mean, just the the story is absolutely amazing. And I got to tell you, even I'm a huge, huge wrestling fan. And even if you're not, I think that the story is still absolutely amazing. I, I truly loved what you did with the film. So a, as a fan and as somebody who has always loved Andre, just seeing it in a different light was absolutely amazing. Well, it's great to hear. And, and you, you, dream if you're someone like me or anyone in the creative field that that you can do something that you have a fun time making that you learn something from that people enjoy and that you make with people who you truly 
you know, have a great time with, and that it checked every single box. So I, I, I can't say enough great things about um, this project, and I'm so glad that that I was lucky enough to have it brought to me. And by the way, what's can you uh, mention what the next project is you're working on, or not yet? I can't. I think middle of next month. Great. Um, you might know about that, but I'm I'm uh, not at liberty to say right now. Well, we would at some point love, love, love to have you back on and chat about your next project. And where are you you based in New York? Yeah. Awesome. I go back and forth with you guys. I think that this next project will probably bring me out there a fair amount, but it's with the same people, a lot of the same people that I did Andre with. And, um, you know, all of us, we've been working on this for a while because we delivered Andre around the holidays last year. So this whole year now we've been working on this project. So we're excited for people to, uh, to find out what we're doing. And by the way, uh, myself, Steve, who's normally here, Patrick's normally here. Uh, we're all stand up comics. So we would love it if at some point you're either out here in LA or we're back in New York, we would love to have you as our guest at one of our shows. i um, I also actually work at the Conan O'Brien show. So if you ever are out here in LA, want to come see a taping, I would love to have you out as one of my guests. That would be absolutely fantastic. Would love to return the favor. That'd be awesome. Fellow, fellow Massachusetts guy. Oh, there you go. He was from Brookline. Uh, where, where were you from? Newton, their rival. Oh, really? Yeah. There you go. Uh, would it's, I- not, it's not like greasers and associates. It's like associates <laughs> and associates. A little, a little <laughs> less conflicted. Uh, we, yeah. I, I, we, I would love to meet you in person, Jason. Can't say thank you enough for making our show your final show to promote this great movie on. And uh, I have to go back home and cancel my HBO subscription to get my 20 bucks back now that I've seen the movie. <laughs> All right. Only, only tell them the first part, not the second. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for calling into our show. We appreciate it. And to Everybody listening, check out the Andre the Giant movie on HBO, On Demand, all that other good stuff. Jason Hare, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You got it, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, Aaron, thank you for jumping in. Just a great movie. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's great. And uh, thank you to Jason for calling in. Andre the Giant is the movie. It's on HBO, On Demand. Check it out. Uh, just want to say thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, Steve Byrne is in Liberty, Ohio this weekend working at the Funny Bone near Cincinnati. Patrick Keene will be back in studio next week. I got to tell you, without revealing too much, we have some great guests lined up coming soon uh, that you will absolutely love. So keep it here, locked in to the Gentleman's Dojo here at the All Things Comedy Studios in Burbank. I've been your host, Gary Can. Thank you guys for joining us. And thank you again to Jason Hare of the Andre the Giant movie. Bye-bye.